solo and group clinicians alike are buzzing about Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals. With live customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and an extensive feature library, Therapy Notes is sure to streamline your workflow, giving you time to care more and worry less. Try them for two months free using promo code MODERN today. Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy. And one of the topics that our listeners have been asking for for quite a while is about the revolution of microdosing and psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. And we have kind of been listening and trying to find a way to bring this topic to you. And today we're joined by Dr. Craig Heacock. He's a psychiatrist in Colorado and host of the Back from the Abyss podcast, who's here to talk to us about the ways that this is showing really promising research into the mental health worlds, as well as ways that clinicians should conceptualize this and maybe incorporate this. And I feel obligated to say that we are not at least Katie and I are not microdosing ahead of <laughs> recording this episode. <laughs> That'll actually have a relevant point a little bit later here, but thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Heapock. Yeah, thank you. We are so glad to have you here. I've been excited to talk about this topic for a while because I've been hearing so much about it. But before we dive in, we love to ask each of our guests, who are you and what are you putting out into the world? Well, I'm an adolescent and adult psychiatrist in Colorado and addiction specialist. I guess most recently what I've been putting out into the world is my podcast. The last year and a half, I've been publishing, producing a psychiatric storytelling podcast called Back from the Abyss. And also I have a huge interest in psychedelics and psychedelic assisted therapy. And I do a lot of ketamine work. I've done about 1500 intramuscular and intravenous ketamine sessions. And just a couple of months ago, Lisa Ling did a documentary on psychedelic healing. And she, for that documentary, she came to my office and filmed me doing some ketamine work. So she followed three different people, one doing MDMA work, one doing psilocybin, one doing ketamine. So I think a lot of people saw that work and it was really excited. And I got inquiries from all over the country, like, what is this ketamine thing? And what is ketamine-assisted psychotherapy? And is this for me? And is this good for trauma? So I'm very interested in that realm. From a, a treatment standpoint, it, it's really hard to find a good psychiatrist. And we know that the crisis in the mental health field is partially based on the absence of, of good psychiatrists. We've seen this you know, across the country in a lot of different ways. The psychiatrists that I do find myself working with don't seem to be falling into the same kind of patterns that I did see in the, in the early parts of my career where it was just a lot of medication management, med check sort of visits that seems to be taking a little bit more of a holistic approach and maybe not as much of a westernized medicine approach. How do you see psychiatry changing and why is it so damn hard to find a good psychiatrist? <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, those are two two separate questions. Let me just first speak to the why it's so hard to find one. I just did a mini episode on this on Back from the Abyss. And the way I conceptualize it is I talked about it almost like salmon spawning home, that for a salmon to get back up river, it has to get up fish ladders and dams and escape the grizzlies and the fishermen and very few make it back. And I think that's a lot like psychiatry. So what I mean by that is the barriers to entry are huge. So to get into medical school is obviously very difficult, but they're not really looking for psychiatrist kind of people. Like if you look at most people that go into medicine, they're very they're very sciencey and they're not necessarily psychologically minded. They're not people I think that have necessarily done much therapy. They're not necessarily people that have a lot of curiosity of the psyche or the unconscious. So I, I argued in that episode that there's a bias against picking people who would be interested in psychiatry from the get-go. And then when you get to medical school, there's a definite anti-psychiatry bias that still persists. It's kind of, it's like, I feel like it's a little bit like coming out gay. Mm. Like when I finally confess, you know, telling people I was going to be a psychiatrist, there was a lot of crap. And I've talked to some current medical students and they say, yeah, it's still something that you keep on the DL because a lot of specialties like, oh, you're not going to be a real doctor or we're giving you all this medical training and you're going to work with this weird black box called the psyche. But even for the people who make it through all that and get to psychiatry residency, I think, and this was true for me, I think we don't, and all of us therapists and doctors don't really know what we're getting into until we dive in. But Working with severe mental illness is really hard. And I know a bunch of my psychiatric colleagues who have moved to consultation, have moved to sort of the worried well practices, have moved to very, very part-time, who do a little inpatient, who do locum tenants, but they don't really see the outpatient psychiatry day in, day out, year in, year out people because it's really hard. It's, it's really grueling work. And then the final thing is there's this huge, and Kurt, you alluded to this, there's this really difficult choice that psychiatrists have to make, which is, do we want to be med check people or do we want to be holistic? So it's almost like in residency, we get trained to be garden consultants. We learn fertilizing and soils and plant selection and weeding and garden, you know, all that. But then we get out and we realize, hmm, what the market really wants, they want fertilizer managers. You know, that's what, mm. if you want to get an employed job as a psychiatrist with a nice 401k and everything paid for, a nice salary, they want you to do med checks. They want you to be a fertilizer manager. But if you want to be a holistic psychiatrist, you have to go on your own. And if you have to go on your own, then you have to decide, am I going to take insurance or not? And then that's basically this other difficult thing where if you're going to take insurance, you're probably going to end up doing a lot of fertilizer management. And then at the very end, I think are people who are trying to do what I'm doing, which is trying to do see whole person psychiatry, trying to give people the time they need and deserve and the sad reality of psychiatry is the vast majority of us who do this don't take insurance because A, it's a hassle and B, we don't have to. So then again, like in America, you know, the people, the money get the best of everything. And that's true in psychiatry for sure, but more than any other part of medicine. And it's a shame. It's so sad. And it's one of the many reasons I started the podcast was just to put some information and hope out there because I know a lot of people can't find a good psychiatrist. So I thought... Let's just share some stories of hope and wisdom, and maybe that can help some people. I feel like one of us has to make the comment that with this whole fertilizer analogy, it's just a lot of crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's actually, Kurt, so that leads into your second question, Kurt, which is how is psychiatry changing? You know, I would argue that there's been nothing really good in psychiatry since 1994. So that's when Lamotrigine came on the market. 
So since then, we've had atypical antipsychotics like Latuda and Abilify and Seroquel, and we've had TMS, which is a whole other topic. But really, like, what has actually meaningfully changed in psychiatry in 26 years? Nothing. We've come up with some new treatments, a lot of which are pretty toxic. But then in the last couple of years, it's just, it's never been a more thrilling time because these things are coming online like ketamine, psilocybin's coming soon, MDMA is almost surely coming soon. I mean, treatments that can actually transform people, not just manage symptoms. And, and I think that's also coming along with this realization that it's so much of what's treatment resistant in psychiatry, mental health is trauma. You know, for the longest time, you know, what psychiatry has not been able to help is people with, with deep trauma and people with negative symptoms of schizophrenia. And I don't even re- really remember much PTSD training in my residency. And we never talked about anything somatic, like the body didn't exist. It was all the mind and the psyche. We did tons of psychodynamic exploration. But, but now I think coming on board with, with psychedelics coming online is this realization that, oh yeah, the body does keep the score, that trauma is held in the body-spirit interface, that these treatment-resistant people, why are they treatment-resistant? A lot of them because they have trauma. Yeah, they're depressed or they are anxious or panicky, but really what's going on is they have these deep wells of often attachment, trauma, neglect trauma. And so it's really cool that as we're realizing how much the body holds trauma and how much that's expressing itself psychiatrically, that we're actually now getting some tools where we can plumb the unconscious and get there. It's never been a more exciting time, I think, to be in doing trauma work in psychiatry. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's been this like psychedelic revolution that's happening in psychiatry recently, although it does seem a little quiet, (laughs) but it's still (laughs) happening. Mm -hmm. And so for, for folks who aren't aware of what's going on, what is, what is psychedelic assisted treatment and, and why is it happening now? Mm -hmm. First of all, I think we have to talk about words. So the word psychedelic means mind manifesting. And it's an old term. So it's kind of a general term. So psychedelics is a big tent. So is MDMA a psychedelic? I mean, most people would say no, they call it an entheogen. But so there's a lot of, we have to be careful about words. But I think in general, when we're talking about psychedelics, we're talking about chemicals that take people deeply into other states, other parts of their conscious or unconscious and help them sort of plumb the psyche in a way that they're not able to do without these substances. And so right now, what's most relevant in psychiatry is ketamine. And ketamine is a dissociative general anesthetic that's been around for 50 years, but in the last few years has become more and more become the go-to treatment for suicidality, severe depression, PTSD. In my office, I'm doing probably 16 intravenous high-dose treatments a week. It's cool. It's like being a shaman. Yeah. In fact, someone texted me today and said, you fix my brain, you shaman. And, uh, and it's cool. Ketamine is not a fix. I think that's important to note. Ketamine is a very powerful psychedelic experience that for reasons we sort of understand and sort of don't, is a profound treatment that pulls people out of depression often within 12 hours, but it's not a fix. MDMA, what was formerly known as ecstasy, looks like it's going to be a fix for a lot of people. And we're seeing, I worked in the MAPS MDMA study for three years, and we're seeing people go into full remission from decades of PTSD with just three, three MDMA sessions plus integration and, and uh, preparation. So I think of these 
what I think of the role of these these substances as speeding up that initial trust and plumbing the depths of the trauma that, you know, trauma work can take years. I mean, some trauma, you know, some, some trauma treatments, the first three, four, five years are just about building trust. And MDMA can do that in 45 minutes. Well, maybe an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> um, you know, psilocybin can take you to the depths of your unconscious, you know, within an hour and 15 minutes, places that you didn't even know existed. So it's not that these treatments are replacing psychotherapy. In fact, I think it's going to make psychotherapy even more thrilling because you can get through that tough slog of trying to break down the the barriers and the defenses and the defender parts and the dissociative numbing and get to the real stuff, like break the dam, get it, get it all out. So the work can actually happen. So I, because trauma work can take years and is so expensive and, you know, a lot of people just cannot afford that. But I see these substances as being able to, again, bring people quickly to a place where they can start to do their trauma work and thrilling for therapists to be able to skip these really painful, painful early months and months and months of years of just trying to build trust and, and collaboration. Therapy Notes not only combines billing, scheduling, and notes into one easy-to-use software, they now also offer group telehealth, up to 15 clients in a group session at a time, and secure messaging features. And with their 24-7 customer service, they're ready to assist you no matter where your practice takes you. Therapy Notes allows you to do it all. Whether you're a solo clinician or part of a group practice, you'll have all the tools for success at your fingertips with Therapy Notes. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. You're speaking a lot to the benefits of these kinds of treatments. What kind of safety concerns might there be for patients and also for clinicians who are working with patients who are going through this kind of treatment? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we have to talk about each substance because a lot of ways saying psychedelics, it's like saying drugs or food. Food is bad. <laughs> it's not just yeah. a candy drugs bowl of ecstasy yeah. sitting on the, in the waiting room. <laughs> yeah. That... <laughs> yeah. So I'll just speak to, well, let me just talk about ketamine because ketamine, there's hundreds of thousands of ketamine treatments occurring all over the country right now. It's saving people's lives right now. Ketamine can make people extremely nauseated, get, make them motion sick. It can be scary. It can raise your blood pressure. So we need to carefully manage those. It can make you manic. So if you have bipolar one and you go a little too high on the dose, you can make people manic. I've seen that. Or, and this, this actually ties in the bigger concern of psychedelic therapy in general. So when people are in an altered state, they're very vulnerable. They're, and all sorts of dynamics can come up. So what a lot of cl clinicians are worried about is sexual boundary crossing, physical boundary crossing, and making sure that in this altered psychedelic space that patients are safe and that therapists are safe. So a year ago, I had a patient accuse me of sexually assaulting her during a ketamine session. And thank goodness that I have a medical assistant who's with me the whole time. And she's in the room. In fact, she's the one that mostly monitors the IVs. I do the pre and post work. And it was a really powerful wake-up call to this whole idea that when you're working people in altered states, not only are they vulnerable, but you are vulnerable. And so I think what's going to need to happen is either a having two therapists in the room, having psychedelic sessions videotaped, again, not just for the patient's protection, but for the therapist. And 
um, because these are such powerful chemicals. They also have this serious kind of boundary crossing, boundary violation side. And that, that has happened a lot in psychedelic work. It will continue to happen. And I think in the biggest sense, that's my number one concern. I mean, yes, mushrooms can give you uh, a really scary panic attack. And yes, too much MDMA can cause uh, serotonin syndrome. But really, like, what's the big risk? I think the big risk is that the psychedelic space is so vulnerable. Laura Northrup, on her outstanding podcast, Inside Eyes, she talks a lot about this this whole idea of entheogens and psychedelics being profound tools to heal sexual trauma, but without really careful monitoring the therapist, and even unknown, like these aren't all like predator therapists, just to be in that kind of space with someone who's so vulnerable, therapists can unknowingly, unwittingly get pulled into some, into the role of the abuser and recreate the abuse during the psychedelic session. That feels like it's something pretty intense, both for the patient, although they're altered, but also for the therapist. To me, it seems like there may be some self-assessment for folks who are interested in, in working in this space. Mm-hmm. What do you think it would take for someone to, to jump into this? Obviously, it, I also want to talk about like what, what would non-psychiatrists do in this space? Because I've got colleagues that are like, I really want to work in this. Mm-hmm. But for for folks who are interested in this, it feels like there is, you know, it's exciting. There's there's movement, but there's also this huge vulnerability, and mm-hmm. and it's brand new territory. So who should yeah. be doing this, and who shouldn't? Be? Yeah. So that's a really good question. So first of all, I think, you know, there's psychedelic work, if you will, or experiences that where people have a sitter just to keep them safe, to keep them from like running out into traffic or something bad happening, and that that's fine and good, but that's not a good idea for people with real trauma. So I think anybody who's using these substances, whether it's ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin, who has real trauma, they need, in my opinion, an experienced therapist. So first is people, I have a lot of people ask me, I want to be a psychedelic therapist. And what I tell them first is become a good therapist, do your own work. And then you're going to need to do some psychedelic work because I can't imagine that you could effectively work with somebody in a psilocybin experience if you hadn't had that yourself. In the MAPS training, all the therapists are offered an all-day MDMA experience so they can go through what the what the participants do. There's an interesting controversy in the ketamine world, and it kind of breaks down between psychiatrists and anesthesiologists, which is, if you're going to give people ketamine, should you have experienced it yourself? And the anesthesiologists are like, no, no. And the psychiatrists would say, oh, yeah, for sure. And I've been, I've been, I had an online argument about that recently at a conference and it really broke down between the anesthesiologist and the psychiatrist, but these are really powerful states. And I think that's going to be um, one of the many things that need, you need to check your box. You, you're a competent therapist. You, you have done your own work. You understand your own potential boundary crossing violation tendencies, and you've worked with that substance. So you are familiar with it. On this debate on whether or not people should use it, and going back to the comment that I made in introducing this episode, there's an article recently in the Public Understanding of Science that the public, when looking at researchers and people who have self-admitted to using things like psychedelics, that they perceive their work to be 
lower or less quality than people doing the same kind of work, but without the self-admitting piece. Now, Katie and I are big fans of people owning their story and talking about their personal experiences with stuff as appropriate with clients. But this seems to be one area where that might actually potentially hinder some clients' access to what seems to be a really great treatment. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, my suspicion is everybody doing research on psychedelics has done psychedelics because you know research is me-search. You know, what percentage of people doing eating disorder <laughs> research have had an eating disorder? I mean, 99.9999. What percentage of addiction therapists? You know, anyway, so I, yeah, I guess what I think, um, I'm curious if you've experienced this, Kurt. I know you're a runner. I'm a runner. I have some people come to me and say, you know what? You're a serious runner. That's one of the reasons I chose you. I have other people say, it took me eight months to call you because I see you're a serious runner and I think you're going to shame me. You're going to make, you're going to think I'm lame and lazy and you're, gonna, you're already not going to like me. I think just because I'm a runner. And so I think, <laughs> I don't, so I guess when I, I saw that article that you sent me, I thought, well, yeah, people come up with all sorts of stories, researchers, I mean, microdosing or therapists who are runners or therapists who admit that they had eating disorder. Um, yeah. I mean, all those people doing psychedelic research have done psychedelics. So maybe we should just say that, like, get over it, people. <laughs> I mean, that's why they're doing this research. It's, it's whether yeah. or not they're out there publicly owning the story is what yes. I'm hearing out of this. Yeah. Yeah. So, and more and more people are talking about it. It's really interesting. Even one of my favorite podcasters, Peter Atia, who's a doc, and he's openly talked about his psilocybin experiences. And of course, Tim Ferriss has, and, and Tim Ferriss has talked about his MDMA experiences. So people, some powerful people are openly speaking about how psychedelics have really furthered their trauma work and moved them forward in life. So I, I really think we're at Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point. You know, I remember even Colorado, you know, years ago thinking, gosh, will weed ever be legal? There's no way. And all of a sudden, boom, not only is weed legal, it's everywhere. And it's, you know, high octane THC wax and shatter. And it just happened like that. Or, you know, gay marriage, same thing. Like there's no way that's going to happen. Boom. And now it's amazing. Like I get literally get 70-year-old women coming into my office for a session, like, do you think I should microdose? Like, how would you recommend that I take shrooms? You know, I'm thinking, like, are you serious? I mean, this happens. Or I just had an email the other day, and this woman said, well, I've been in bed a year depressed, but what got me out of bed was psilocybin. And, and so she's telling me her whole story about that. And what do you think about that? I said, wow, that's great. She said, I'm not all the way better. I need your help. But they, this is common now that people are coming in. These aren't just like, you know, 20 something, you know, stoner guys, these are grandmothers and high school principals who are coming in. Hey, um, I had an ayahuasca journey last year and I'm thinking about doing, you know, DMT with an underground sitter that I found. Like, what do you think about that? So I think, the, you know, everything doesn't change until it does. Well, that leads me to the question of kind of more this underground scene seems to be coming out into the open. And I think there are also legislation things that are following to support the ability to use these things. I mean, what, what needs to happen for this to become kind of best practice and, and in the mainstream, do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge question. So, well, let's, let's just talk about, let's be very concrete. Let's talk about psilocybin. So psilocybin from psilocybin mushrooms very likely we'll get FDA approval for treatment-resistant depression in the next two or three years. The phase three trials are looking really good. How's that going to roll? I mean, I think there's a really good chance that in Colorado, psilocybin might be decriminalized or even legalized before it's medicalized. 
you know, with marijuana in Colorado, we had medicalization, which actually was kind of nice to do that first, I think, to kind of break it in before we had full legalization. But I, psilocybin is something that, again, because the tide's turning so quickly, I wouldn't be surprised if it's decriminalized or legalized first, which would not be my preference because I would hate to have it used so indiscriminately that then it got locked away forever and couldn't be used in medicine. So there's definitely in the psychedelic kind of community, there's a real split between the medicalizers, at least the initial medicalizers. I would put myself in that boat. Like let's medicalize these things first and control control and see versus more the libertarian. This stuff's coming anyway. You shouldn't be told what you can and can't put in your body. And why should we let the medical community control these things? Let's, let's bring it on full steam. So, and again, probably like is happening more and more in the U S it's going to be state by state. If you want to buy big guns, you go to Wyoming. If you want big fireworks, you go to Wyoming. If you want psilocybin, you go to Colorado. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Even within this medical context, Katie and I being in California, where there was the the medical marijuana before things have have opened up to where the things stand now even some of the approach to the medical stuff seemed kind of like just a a joke that you know you you can go down to venice beach you can go down to venice beach and and give a doctor 40 bucks and literally claim any ill to get medical marijuana How does that fit within this conversation in the medical versus, you know, kind of opening things up, decriminalized sort of space? Yeah. I think I have a lot of strong opinions on this. (laughs) I did an episode on this in the first season called, um, I think it was called, Can Marijuana Really Be Medical? But I looked at this psychiatric idea. There's all sorts of people that have, you know, green cards, medical cards in Colorado for depression, PTSD. But interestingly, these people are using mostly using really high potency strains of THC or just full-on THC on opposed to CBD that is making things much worse. Yeah. So, I mean, if I were the, the dictator of Colorado, I would eliminate medical marijuana and just say, come on, get real. This, this is recreational. If you want to use it medically for your glaucoma or your chemotherapy <laughs> nausea, like do that. But in Colorado, if you have a medical card, you can get weed way, way cheaper. So I know a lot of people that get their monthly ration way cheaper and then they sell the rest of it. So they use a good chunk of it. They sell it to subsidize. So they basically become kind of subsidized dealers, which like, let's, I just like, let's be honest. Like, 
let's just get rid of this ridiculous medical distinction and just make it all recreational and tax it heavily like the recreational is. But I do, I sometimes think I spend half of my time with patients talking about weed or sleep. Sometimes I, I bike home from work and I think I'm a weed and sleep doctor. <laughs> you know, meaning like trying to get people to sleep better and trying to get people to not use so much high potency weed. My take on that is, you know, growing up in the 80s, you know, the weed we had was like Coors Light. It was four, five, six percent by weight, THC. Weed now is like Everclear, 35, 40, 45 percent THC by weight, or you just buy straight up THC. And it, we're regularly seeing people have psychotic breaks. If someone told me 10 years ago, oh, you're going to regularly have patients like run around naked with weapons because of marijuana, I'd say there's no way. But actually, to be technically accurate, it's not usually people smoking flowers, people using THC, you know, wax or shatter. But I probably have two or three patients a month go psychotic from, from THC. And, con- you know, so many people come in, oh, I'm having panic, you know, but there's, you know, they're using $200 of THC a week. Like, oh, it helps wow. me. Like, it is not helping you. It, <laughs> this is no. So we do a lot in Colorado, we're doing a lot of damage control with people who are using these really high potency strains. And what I tell people is like, look, please, like you're using Everclear, just drink beer. Meaning don't, don't vape wax. Don't smoke shatter. Like just smoke like a regular bud of lower potency THC. And that will probably be okay. But it's a constant fight with people. And again, part of it, I think is people like, oh, it's medical. It's treating my illness. That's not helpful. That, that is frustrating. So I think it could help people in general, if we could just get rid of this idea, like, Hey, it's recreational. It's a coping strategy. Fine. But this whole idea, like, Oh, it's my medical. This is, this is my treatment. Like at least psychiatrically, I think that's largely bogus. Well, that's very validating to me because that's been kind of my opinion as well. So yay. (laughs) (laughs) It's recreational. It's fine. Sometimes it's good, but it's like, I think the issue here is kind of what should be regulated and what and medicalized and and formulated and what could be recreational. And I think for me, because I hear about people kind of creating their own microdosing or identifying, you know, what, how much THC they want to have or those kinds of things. And it's, to me, it feels like because of how hidden and illegal and all of that stuff that most of these substances have been, it feels like people as, as the door is opening, people are like, Oh my gosh. And it's like, candy jars in the, mm-hmm. <laughs> in the waiting room. It's like, how best if someone is thinking, I need something different. And I'm, I'm thinking more from a client perspective or therapists helping their clients make some of these choices or, or navigate some of these, these issues around whether they're actually recreationally using something or getting medicine. But how should people consider how they go about some of this stuff? Because to me, I'm, I'm hearing people saying like, well, I'm microdosing. And it's like, well, under a physician's care mm. or are you just only smoking a little or only yeah. taking a little? Like, So when you, when you say microdosing, you mean marijuana? Is that what you're referring to? No, I'm just, I'm oh. speaking broadly. Mm. I mean, I think people are like, I'm microdosing X, you know, like yeah. whatever it is. But yeah. I think these things need to be under medical, like a physician's care is what I'm hearing in order for it to be safe and effective versus there's some stuff that's recreational that people should just say, this is recreational and it's not my medicine. Mm-hmm. Again, I think it's very substance dependent. Microdosing psilocybin seems very, very, very safe. 
But I know people, I have a number of patients that even at the tiniest bit of THC can flip them into mania or psychosis, tiny amounts. So yeah, in general, we think of marijuana as being pretty safe, but for some people, THC is completely destabilizing. We don't see that with psilocybin. And then like with, you can't really microdose MDMA because it won't do anything. You need a certain kind of escape velocity. I think the same tr is true with ketamine. Well, people do microdose ketamine, but then you get into a whole other series of problems. But I think it's good that we're talking about these things. And I, I love that people are asking me. Part of me making Back from the Abyss, we talk about psychedelics a lot. So I think that gives people permission. If they look on my website, they say, oh, this is someone we could, I could probably bring this up and way better to talk about it. But what people don't really talk about is their marijuana use. Like, I don't know if I get one message to therapists who are listening. You, you all should take four or five minutes every session and find out more about your client's sleep and their substance use. Because I have a lot of people come to me who've been seeing therapists a long time and they, they miss the person's using tons of weed and high concentration THC. Um, and as I said, I often think I'm a sleep and weed doctor because I'm just constantly realizing that those two factors, like if you can get a good night of sleep and not abuse substances, like you're halfway there. You might, you might be three-fourths of the way there. Your podcast, Back from the Abyss, talks about emerging from the deep darkness of the human condition. Can you tell us a little bit more about what attracted you to telling these stories? A few factors. One is in 2012, I went through my own really dark place with addiction. I had had, at that point late aughts, I did five suicides. I had two shortly thereafter. And then I had my first of two patients murdered. And I just, I just started melting down. And I, um, you know, I was 40 years old and thinking, I can't do this anymore. This is too hard. This is too, it's too sad. It's too brutal. And then in the last nine years, I've really been able to find a way to do this and not have it drag me down so much. But one of the things I really found is is making the podcast is it reminds me that people get better, that people come out of the brink. So part of it's for me, part of it is my self-care. Part of it is my passion project. Another part of it is episode one, Elizabeth, which is a really, really powerful episode, but she's been my patient for years. And she had been saying, I want to tell my story. I want to share that you can come back from such horrific suicidality. And she was in the ICU on a ventilator after her most recent attempt. And and her story was so inspirational. And I was, as it kind of came together, this, like, I want to put something out there. I thought of her, I thought of me wanting to put some hope out there. And I thought, yeah, I want to help people tell their stories so we can spread the word that you can come out of a really dark place. And that even if it takes a long time and a brutal slog, and that it's okay that you go back, because pretty much everyone I've asked to be on it has said, well, I still really go to dark places. I said, that's good. Yeah, we're not looking for the home run, bases loaded, done, sit down. We're looking for the hard-earned wisdom. And then when the darkness comes back, what do you do? So it's helped me a lot. And just earlier today, before I talked to you guys on the last episode of the podcast, I said, hey, I want to get to know some of you. If you guys want to have a video chat and meet me. So the last two days I've been doing these video chats with people all over the world. It's so fun. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> it's so, and it's also such a good pandemic thing because I've just, we feel so isolated and yeah. it's been really cool to connect with these people that are being moved by the stories because they definitely moved me. And it's been, I think, almost uniformly really therapeutic for the people telling their stories because I tell them like, look, choose a pseudonym if you want, tell the story that you need to tell. I, I want this to be your hero's journey. I want, you know, everybody... 
before I publish it, I send it to them and they can have anything cut that they want. And almost nobody ever wants anything cut. So I really want them to feel good about yeah, their journey. And, and that's been one of the coolest things when I send the final cut and they call me, oh, I love it. Even though they're talking about <laughs> brutal, I mean, a lot of them are, I don't know if you, I mean, some of them are just really hard stuff. I guess, you know, when we create things that help other people, it helps us. It's helped me a lot. We will link to that in our show notes, but uh, where else can people find you and learn more about what you're doing? So you can link to my podcast or learn more about me at Craig Hecock, C-R-A-I-G-H-E-A-C-O-C-K-M-D.com. You can, the Back from the Abyss is on all the podcast apps. And yeah, I want to thank you too so much for having me on. This is really fun. And you can find our show notes at mtsgpodcast.com. And while you're there, you can check out all the projects that Katie and I are working on. Come and follow us on our social media and join our therapist group on Facebook, the Modern Therapist Group. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Renoy and Dr. Craig Heacock. Thanks to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, use promo code MODERN for two free months. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 